Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It is good to have all of you here with us uh, this weekend as we continue our study in the book of Acts in this series called The Movement. And we uh, are looking at this amazing New Testament book about how the church began. We started last week uh, by looking at the three levels of the book of Acts, uh, how we can view it, uh, how we can apply it in three different sort of major ways. So just a quick recap of last week. Uh, the main idea of Acts is that it's the story of the early church. It is a history of how what we're doing now started 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. How did that happen? The book of Acts tells us about that. But really at its core, it's the story of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is the one who really initiated this movement to go not only regionally through the then known Roman world, but now has reached billions and billions of people all across the globe. And then as we talked about uh, at the very end last week, that Acts is also the story of us that we are a continuation of what we're reading here in this ancient document in the Bible, the book of Acts. We are working out what that looks like in our culture, in our day, in our time, and hopefully we're doing that well, and Acts is going to continue to challenge us as we move along into how we can do that more and more effectively today. So today we're going to look, as we continue, three views of the movement, three ways to look at the book of Acts. Uh, We're going to today look at three themes. So When we look at the the church and how it started, we're going to look at what was most important to them. What were those non-negotiable themes or beliefs uh, that they held that propelled them forward? What were those things that they were literally willing to die for? Those three, there are three themes that we'll see. Really, we're going to read the first full section of chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 in just a second. And we'll see all three of these themes in that section. But then we'll see a continuation throughout the entire book of Acts of these same three themes. These are the three major components uh, that the early church believed so strongly that they risked everything for the movement, for the sake of these three themes. So let's look at it here. Acts chapter 1, we'll read again the first full section, verses 1 through 11, to see these three themes from the book of Acts today. So Acts 1, start at the very top again today, verse number 1. Luke here writing, he says, In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John, John the Baptist, baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So in these 11 verses, we see the three main themes that will go all the way through this book and even our three main themes of the church today. So before we get into them, I will mention the first two. So what we're going to try to do is see how the original uh, apostles or disciples would have understood and seen what Jesus was saying. So we're going to get into some of their maybe uh, mental background, their tradition. So we'll look, we'll look at quite a bit of scripture, the first two uh, major themes that we'll look at today with most of our time. The third one will be pretty short as we finish up. So we're going to try to, again, put ourselves in their shoes, in their position to understand. Again, we've had a long time to figure this stuff out. We've had 2,000 years to work through what Jesus was trying to say, and they're doing it on the spot. And so we're going to see they didn't quite uh, see what he was saying at first. It took a while for them to learn what he's actually trying to communicate. But as we get through some of that uh, groundwork, we will see, I think, that they finally got it to some degree. So again, we're looking at these three themes of what the first and er, the early church in Acts believed that propelled them forward. The first major theme that we see here in Acts chapter 1 and then throughout is this theme of resurrection. It may seem obvious, but that is a major theme of the early church and of the church today. We sing about it today, we've talked about it, and we preach about it. We believe that. So let me just say this, an obvious statement, but let me just introduce the idea this way that the resurrection of Jesus is the most amazing event in the history of the world. Now, that is a faith statement. Not everyone would, uh, would agree with that, but I'm telling you, as far as church, the church world is concerned, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the most amazing event in the history of the world. But it's also the most unlikely event in the history of the world because resurrection from the dead isn't a thing that just kind of happens all the time. The reason that we still talk about it 2,000 years later is because it is that rare that that happens. Like, you know, apart from maybe a couple of people in the Old Testament reviving from the dead, and apart from a couple of people that Jesus, through his power, raised from the dead, he's like the only one, probably, that's kind of done that. So it's a pretty big deal. And not only is it the most important and most unlikely event in the history of the world, it's also the most gutsy prediction in the history of the world. So if you go back to John chapter 2, there's this time where Jesus is entering the temple for worship, like he's going to go to church, okay? 
But outside the perimeter of the temple are these tables and these booths outside. And there are people who are exchanging money outside the temple. So what they're doing is not certain, uh, many number of things here. Uh, there's a temple tax they would charge. So just to get in the door, which Jews are required to enter the temple for worship. So it's not an option. It's like, well, I'm just not going to go to church today or I'm just not going to give today. It's like, no, they're required to go at certain days and times. They're required to make sacrifices when they go. And so the people at these tables have a very captive audience. And so they decide we're going to charge this huge tax just for you to enter for worship, which you're required to do. Or they're going to say, you know, if you come from out of town, you're a traveler coming in and you don't have the right currency, we'll gladly exchange the right currency for you, but at a cost. And so I'm sure this is not a new thing. Jesus has come into the temple day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and he's seen this. And finally, something in him, this is right before he's crucified, this is kind of his last chance to make a statement. He makes a statement, doesn't he? He turns the tables over. There's money flying everywhere, receipts flying everywhere. He finds a whip and whips the animals that they're holding in pens and opens up the cages for the birds to fly. I mean, it's just mass chaos, and he, but he's had enough of this. And he says, my father's house should be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves and robbers. So Jesus makes this public display here to make a point. And the religious leaders who you would think would be like, great job, Jesus. They're not because they're the ones that have okayed this practice to be done. They're the ones in charge. And so they're not too happy with Jesus making a mess here of their business. So here's what happens in John chapter 2 that leads to the greatest uh, gutsy, most gutsy prediction of all time. John 2 verse 18. The Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But John tells us this, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So if you watch sports or a lot of, you know, football, there's the pregame show on TV. And before the end of a telecast, before the game starts, all the commentators will give you their prediction for the game. Well, I think that this team's going to win by four points tonight. I think this team's going to win by three tonight. You know, that sort of thing. Or like last night, I think that one team is going to be up 27 to nothing in the first half and then have an epic fail and blow the fourth greatest comeback of all time. No one predicted that last night, okay, guys? But it happened. Or maybe you've been so certain of something in your personal life is going to happen that you tell someone, I guarantee you that this thing is going to happen. I, I'd put all the money I have in the bank on that thing that this is going to happen. It's a done deal. Well, Jesus does this here. He, he makes this claim. He says, you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And it's such a crazy thing to claim that you can raise from the dead that the people he's talking to don't know that's what he's talking about. Because they say, no, no, this temple, this temple that you're standing in front of took 46 years to build. Even if you had a team of 1,000 skilled workers, you couldn't rebuild this temple in three days. So they're missing the point because even what he is saying is so impossible. It cannot be done that they don't even, their mind doesn't even think to go there. They assume he's talking about the temple, the physical, literal building that they're in. But Jesus, 
he probably even made it obvious if you tear down this temple, like he's saying, you kill me and I'll come back before the weekend is over. That's quite a gutsy claim that Jesus made. So amazing, so incredible, so unlikely that the people that were there would have thought he was insane if they even knew what he was talking about. But then guess what happened? He came through on that guarantee. He literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead just a couple of weeks after this event happened. He literally did that. Everyone saw him die. They saw him flogged. They saw him crucified. They saw him lifeless. They saw him wrapped up. They saw him buried and put into a tomb. And then they saw him physically alive three days later. So he came through. He did what he said. And what John says here is when this happened, his disciples remembered he had said this. And so what's interesting is, we're going to read kind of a a longer passage for just a second, but Luke records sort of what that moment looked like. So again, go back with me to the first Easter weekend, okay? It's early Sunday morning, and so if you're one of the original disciples, you've just seen a couple days ago your friend, your leader, the person that you thought was the Messiah crucified. And so you're huddled here, and you're, they're, they're kind of afraid. They, they think probably they're next. If they have a list of people and they know that we're close to him, they're going to find us. They're going to hunt us down. We're dead meat. They don't know what this means, but everything they believe is now turned upside down because our Messiah is now dead. So this isn't good. But then later that evening, two, of, two other followers uh, come in, and they say, we got the craziest story to tell you guys. You're not going to believe this, but we saw Jesus. They were like, oh, that's nice. You wouldn't put flowers at the grave. Oh, that's, you know, that's, no, 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 no. We saw him. Like he walked down the road several miles with us and talked with us. And the whole time we didn't know it was actually him. And then we went, we were going to stop for the night because we were almost where we were going. And he stopped with us and we started to eat. And as he broke the bread and we started to eat, we realized it was Jesus. Yeah, we know we saw him die. We know he's dead. We know that's not possible. But we, we talked to him. We walked with him. We ate with him. And as soon as we discovered who it was, he disappeared. So the disciples hear this story, and then they look over to a group of women who are with them, and they're like, hmm. Because earlier that same morning, this group of women had gone to the tomb of Jesus, who they just saw beaten and crucified to death, brutal, agonizing, torturous uh, crucifixion. And they say, in the morning, we went to the tomb and the stone was rolled away over the entrance and we went inside and it was empty. And then there was this angel that said, he's alive. And so we came and told them. And so they're hearing these stories, but You have to understand that in the moment, they're like, what do we do with this information? That that can't happen. We understand what Jesus said, but we saw what happened to him, so we're not sure what to do. So then Luke tells us this account of what John talked about in John 2. So catch this, Luke 24, verse 35. Then the two from Emmaus, the two men, told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Now, I don't want to accuse Jesus of asking a stupid question, but the first thing he tells them, he says, why are you frightened? Well, why do you think, Jesus? (laughs) Why do you think we're frightened, you know? But that's what he says. He says, why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. 
You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent you are witnesses of all these things. Have you heard of the phenomenon online called a deep fake? You familiar with that? So it's this technology uh, where someone can be on a video or it appears as if someone is on a video, but it's not actually that person. So there's technology that will mimic the movements of this person. So this other person will actually be on the screen, mimicking the voice of maybe a celebrity or someone, mimicking the movements, and then the technology that they have will superimpose the other person's image onto uh, this other person speaking. So Jesus here in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Luke says that Jesus proved to his disciples in many ways over at least a 40-day period that he actually rose from the dead. So what Jesus is showing them is he's not a deep fake. He actually talked with them, conversed with them in person here in this moment in Luke 24. They were able to physically touch him. They saw him eat food many, many times. They're eating together over these next 40 days. And what's interesting is the apostles, as much as, again, you can even hear it in Luke 24, as much as they want to believe what they're seeing, they're having a hard time with that. They have the same mental block that the religious leaders did in John chapter 2 when Jesus predicted his resurrection. Because resurrection isn't a thing. It doesn't, not a thing that, that just happens all the time. It's not a, a normal occurrence. It's not even a natural occurrence. It's not even a, a possible occurrence. And yet it's actually happened. It's standing right in front of them. So they have this same mental block they have to get through. And so Jesus had to prove to them that his prediction actually happened. And so what the disciples, what the apostles and in the church began to understand is, if that's true, if the resurrection is true, then so was everything else that Jesus said. That's the final nail in the coffin of belief. When you can come to grips that the resurrection is an actual event that actually happened and Jesus said it would happen, then you can believe everything else that Jesus said to be true. Because that's the most incredible thing he said. And if that happened, then everything else would then also be true. What the church realized is if the resurrection is true, that event changes everything. So Jesus' resurrection is the greatest event in history, even though it's the most unlikely event in history. And it's also, uh, one more thing, it's also the most important event in human history. How important is it? Let's look here quickly at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul tells us how important the resurrection of Jesus is as a theme, as a belief to the church. It's this important. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, and then verse 17, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. 
Then verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In terms of importance, Paul equates the resurrection of Jesus to the death and sacrifice of Jesus. So the resurrection of Jesus is an essential theme to the message of the gospel, the story about Jesus. says It's his life, his death, and his resurrection. Paul says without his resurrection, your faith is useless because the cross would save you from your sins, for, I guess, for now. But the fact that he rose from death, he defeated sin on the cross, that's great. Then he defeated death by rising from the dead. So your salvation continues on for all eternity. It's not just that you're okay with God right now, but then that's it. That's the end of the story. We just go into the dirt. We cease to exist. Like, that's not how this works. There is a life after the one to come, and Jesus shows us that through his resurrection. It's why he took the time to prove to his followers that he died and rose again. It's why they believe that he died, but now he lives forevermore. And that's the other thing that separates his resurrection from all other resurrection stories and accounts is that he rose from the dead, and then he didn't die again. Even the people that Jesus himself, you know, rose from the dead, they rose, and then at some other point, they died again for good that time. Jesus rose from the dead, and he is still alive, and they were convinced of that. And they were so convinced that they risked their lives. We'll read about some of those people that risked their lives with this claim involved. They would not recant their faith, including the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. It was an essential theme for them, and it should be essential theme and belief for us as well. Here's the second theme that we will spend a little bit of time on as well. Uh, And again, the the next two, the final two themes are kind of like a kid uh, in the car on a road trip. The next two themes are, are we there yet? It's kind of what we're talking about. The second theme that we'll see here in in this first section and in the book of Acts is the theme of reign or the theme of God's kingdom. A, A major portion of the teachings of Jesus are about the kingdom of God. That's what all of his parables are about. All of them are the kingdom of heaven is like, and he tells a story to illustrate a point about what God's kingdom is like. The kingdom of God is like this. It's like that. So he spends so much time talking about them, about this. So obviously the kingdom, this theme was important to Jesus. And in a different way, it was also very important to the disciples because when, they're, when he's risen from the dead here in Acts chapter one, and he's talking about the kingdom, the first thing they ask him is, okay, are we there yet? Are you now going to restore Israel? Are you going to restore the great kingdom? Is that Now, we thought that's why you came, and then you died, and we weren't sure. But now that you've resurrected, surely you're going to restore your kingdom here on earth now. And it wasn't just important to them, but culturally to all of Israel, this theme has been such a huge deal, the kingdom of God, God's kingdom on earth. Because physically, Israel as a nation had only been unified under one king for just over 100 years in their entire history. The rest of that, they were either not a people group that were settled in a land yet for hundreds of years, or after they've had their kind of 120 years of peace and reign under one king, then they have a civil war and split. Then, they both, then both kingdoms go into exile, and then they're scattered for the rest of history until like, you know, 70 years ago. So for most of their history, there's not been this sort of 
kingdom, but it's something that they have always longed for, always looked for, that the prophets constantly in the Old Testament talk about this future kingdom under a future king. And they expected that that would be Jesus setting up this kingdom in Israel for them, setting up his throne. One example of this is Hosea uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. gives you kind of an idea of what, this, what they would have thought when they think about uh, the kingdom of God. It says this, uh, This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. This is how the disciples are always thinking. When Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, and then when they kind of put the pieces together, oh, you're talking about you being the king, right? And you setting up the kingdom, and then we're going to have this peace like we had a thousand years ago under David, and so, but they, they, they kind of missed the point of what he was saying, because that was the point of the Messiah. That's who he claimed to be. He's David's descendant. If you read the genealogies in, in Matthew, he comes from the line of David. So they're putting all these pieces together saying, this has got to be our guy. And then just a few days before he's crucified, what he, he walks into, he, well, he rides into Jerusalem, doesn't he? Jesus rides in. And it's called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The king is now coming into his capital city. The king is now going to set up his throne. The true king is now going to overthrow our oppressors. And he's going to reign and we're going to be his subjects in Israel once again. And I can imagine another scripture, Psalm 24, again, on that Palm Sunday, right? When he rides into Jerusalem, they're thinking about this type of song, Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, invincible in battle. Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors, and let the king of glory enter. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of heaven's armies. He is the king of glory. And so as the people welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, they have this in mind. He's going to knock some dudes off their throne. He's going to establish himself and reign and rule as our king. But by the end of the week, he has been crucified in disgrace. He's been slaughtered. He's been murdered. So now their plan has gone up in smoke. Now what they thought was about to happen, we're going to see the reign of the king. It never materialized. And so again, you have to think about their mindset. Okay, did we have this guy wrong all along? Was, he, was it somebody else then? Did we miss the real king? Or we were focused on this little itinerant preacher in the region? Like, what's going on? Why did he talk about the kingdom so much if he never made it actually happen? But what Jesus shows his disciples after his resurrection is that his kingdom did come. His kingdom is already here because Jesus was and is king over sin and death. Jesus was and is sovereign over all things. And what his resurrection coupled with this idea of his reign did was show us that he really is divine. He is the king not just of Israel but of the universe, of everything. 
And as hard as that may have been to understand, his disciples eventually believed this. The resurrection is the thing that proved that to them. And so a common phrase that they had really started in that first century was, Jesus is Lord. Now that just seems kind of commonplace and normal, but it's not normal. They, so in the Roman world, the greeting uh, for anyone in the, in the region would be, Caesar is Lord. So Caesar, who's you know, the, the, the leader of the Roman world, he would have set himself up as the king, really, of everything. He would have at least been semi-divine in what he claimed to be. And so you would greet people, Caesar is Lord. But the people who believed in Jesus would say, Jesus is Lord. He is reigning. He is ruling over everything. And so they, they lived, though, <clears throat> we'll mention this briefly, the, the first century church uh, lived in the same tension that we at first century church uh, live in. And it's this tension of what we call the already and the not yet. So already in eternity past, Jesus is already reigning. He is already king. He's already in complete control. Yet there is a future kingdom that is still yet to be fully realized. That's the not yet. So it's hard for even us to live this way and think this way, but it's true. No matter what you're facing, Jesus is sovereign over that thing. No matter what obstacle you is in front of you, he is reigning over and above that thing. Whatever issue you have in your life, whatever disease you have, he is still reigning. He's the king over that. But one day in the future, he will fully and finally consummate his full kingdom, which we'll, we'll get to uh, more of that here uh, in just a second. And it's yet to be realized, but it's, it is right now. So it is, let me say this, it is right now because Jesus is on a throne. He is sovereign over all. He is in control. And so what that means right now, and then we'll get to the not yet in a second, what that means right now is that Jesus wants us to do something about that. He doesn't just want us to know that he's in control, but what he wants us to do is really to live our lives according to his kingdom. If he is the king and we are his subjects, that means that we are right now living within his kingdom in some way. So stay with me. We'll, hopefully I'll try to make sense of this for just a second. He wants us to live according to kingdom principles. And we know this because in the model prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, part of that Jesus says, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So even in that model prayer, Jesus shows us he's already the king, already in control. It's not just a faraway distant thing that we long for. That's part of it. That's the full final realization of that. And then when we look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you read that, think about it in this way now. What Jesus is doing in that sermon is he is telling us how to live kingdom principles out. All the Sermon on the Mount is, is the best possible way you can live your life because he's explaining how the kingdom works, what it looks like to really forgive what it looks like to really be generous, what it looks like to really trust God with your life, what it looks like to really live in harmony with people around you. Those are kingdom principles that he's saying, hey, I'm telling you as the king of this kingdom, this is the best way to live right now, to have just a glimpse, just a taste of what the future kingdom is. You can have that now if you live this kingdom kind of way. And then in the middle of that sermon, Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. 
He's talking about kingdom first right now. Not just anticipating a, a future kingdom, but living according to kingdom principles now. And part of that, Jesus says, is your witnesses to this. In Luke 24, he says that part of this kingdom is to share, other, to share with others what the kingdom can be like, how their life can be lived in kingdom principles that is going to be their best life they could ever imagine. That's part of that. So that then together with others, we can live in the kingdom, the already, the right now, while we await the future kingdom that has not yet come. And that gets to the third theme as we begin to close, and it's this theme of return. So we have the resurrection of Jesus, we have the reign of Jesus, and then we are awaiting the return of Jesus. This is the not yet, and the already and not yet, this is what we're talking about. So Jesus died and rose from the dead. In that time, he taught and told about the kingdom, and then it says he ascended into heaven. He leaves. He's gone. Now, just like he predicted his death and resurrection, he predicted this as well. He, he gave his followers a heads up right before he's crucified. Hey, I'm going to be gone for a while. I'm going to leave you. But then he says, I'm going to return. Let's read this scripture, John 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus sitting down with his disciples. He says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Just like he predicted his resurrection, Jesus promised his return. And then the disciples are still asking that question, are we there yet? When's it going to happen? How long do we have to wait for this event? And what that does for us is two things as we begin to close today. Two things that the, that the return of Jesus does for us. Two things that it builds in us. The first one is anticipation. As we await the return of Jesus, we build that anticipation. We begin to ask, are we there yet? When is that going to happen? Because the original disciples who were there, when they saw him say this and saw him leave, they believed that he would return in their lifetime. If you were to tell them it's going to be more than 2,000 years, they would be like, oh, you're a crazy person. He's going to come back next week. He's just going to be gone for a little while. He's got to get our Airbnbs ready, and then he'll come back, and we're good. We're fine. We're together forever. But it's taking a little bit longer than that. I guess there's a lot of room he's got to prepare up there, okay? He needs to hire a maid service or something to help him out. So they anticipated this at any moment. This was a, they believed in the imminent return of Jesus. It could happen right now. And they wrote that way, they believed that way, they talked that way, and that's, I think, one reason why the church accelerated so quickly. They had this anticipation, man, we want as many people in the kingdom as possible, so we got to get going because he could come back right now, and I want to get my neighbor ready to be there when he comes back, and I want them to anticipate his return, I want to get my coworkers ready and my family members ready, like I want to get everybody I can ready. And so the church just blew up because of the anticipation of the return of Jesus. And I hope that in our hearts, we have that same anticipation that propels us to the same type of action, which is the second thing, which is motivation. So this anticipation leads to motivation, this urgency, because Jesus tells us that, or well, Hebrews tells us that when the king returns, he's going to judge the living and the dead. So he's going to come to bring final justice, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. And after that happens, it's like, okay, we're either in the kingdom or we're out of the kingdom. 
And Jesus even says that those that uh, are with him are in the kingdom, but those that are outside of the realm of his kingdom who have not uh, said that he is king, not uh, given their allegiance to him, they'll be cast into outer darkness, okay? And so that's the urgency, the motivation that we have as we anticipate the return of Jesus. Because we have limited time to tell people about the gospel. We have limited time to tell people about this risen, eternal king who offers everything to us now and forever. Our mission and our message is the same as the early church. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. So remember uh, that you serve a risen Savior. You serve a, a king who conquered death. The greatest enemy of all of us, Jesus the King, conquered that enemy. And we know, we believe, you can remember that he will return soon so that we can continue to share in the full, final kingdom with him forever. These are the themes of Acts, yes, but I hope that these themes, these core ideals, these core beliefs are central to our lives as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he, as we celebrated through communion earlier, that he did die on a cross, that he substituted himself for sinners, just like me, just like all of us. And then he physically died, a brutal, agonizing, excruciating death. But then we know that three days later, he conquered death. The ultimate final foe is conquered. Sin conquered on the cross, death conquered through his resurrection. We serve a risen Savior, and we serve a risen King who is right now sovereign over everything. Even the pain that we feel, he's sovereign above that. Even the stuff that we deal with in life every day, he's sovereign over that. Even tragedy that at times we have to wrestle with and deal with and work through and live with, Jesus is sovereign over that. We serve a resurrected king who is reigning right now. But as followers of Jesus, as believers in Jesus, we know that even though he's not here now, he will soon return to reveal his full and final kingdom. We can only on our best day get a small taste of that kingdom. We can only, as imperfectly as we are, live out kingdom principles on this planet. We only have so much time to tell others about how amazing this kingdom is and how amazing it will be until he returns. And we anticipate that day when we will see our king face to face, when all sin is eradicated, all sickness is eradicated, that there is now no more death ever, anywhere, at all. It does not exist anymore. It's only the peace and love and joy that is the presence of Jesus. And we are motivated with that. The limited time that we have, not knowing where the countdown clock is on his return, help us to be motivated to share the gospel with everyone around us. Help us to have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, as we'll talk about in this series, to motivate us forward to reach those that need to hear about this risen, victorious, reigning King. So I thank you and praise you for all those here today that we would walk out this week uh, with that purpose in our mind, with these themes running through our brains, ready to share the good news about Jesus with everyone around us. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.